You're proposing that we go backwards in time, find humpback whales, then bring them forward in time, drop them off, and hope to hell they tell this probe what to go do with itself. That's a general idea. Well, that's crazy. You got a better idea? Now's the time. Earth faces annihilation, and the only thing that could save humanity is two humpback whales. Join us for a chat about the Lorax's agenda, a weird thing to say on a stump button, and all the fires in a fireworks factory. Then we find out if Star Trek IV The Voyage Home stands the test of time. Sometimes James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello everyone, and welcome to the third and final of our initial Star Trek films in the Test of Time podcast. I'm James Brief. Joining me is Alan Noah. That's me. Hello. Hi. How are you? James, we've come to the end of our Star Trek trilogy. I'm guessing that's why you've got that single tear running down your cheek. You're that sad? Well, I'm sad because you're not going to get to experience a new Star Trek film until we do another Star Trek film. You don't know that. Maybe I'll just like start watching Star Trek movies in my free time for fun. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> like I would do that. Like I'm that much of a loser. Oh, just kidding. But this movie that we're going to be talking about today, Star Trek IV, colon, The Voyage Home, has a very environmentally friendly message. It's not subtle about the fact that we humans should be doing more to protect the earth and living creatures and natural habitats and all of that. I'd consider myself a fairly green person. Would you say that you're a green guy? Yeah, I would say uh, I try to do my part. Uh, and I recycle. I cut all the rings whenever I have one of those uh, six-pack rings. Uh, oh, you shouldn't have those six-pack rings in the first place, James. Cutting them is good, but you know what would be better? Not buying them in the first place. Well, I buy them so that someone who's not going to cut them won't be able to have the uh, six-pack that I'm using. Oh, uh, still, I don't think that's very good. Um, You drive a Prius, right? No, I drive a RAV4. Do you? I used to have a Prius years ago. Oh, okay. Well, that counts. That's green. (laughs) Yes, it is. I I used to have a plug-in Prius, actually. Oh, well, there you go. Um, I feel like now a lot of places you go to, restaurants and stuff, have the uh, the cardboard straws. But before, that was like the thing that every restaurant had. Courtney and I had reusable straws that we would bring with us to restaurants. That's pretty green. That's pretty uh, cool with your straws because the straws that we have now were still a generation until they're actually good. Those straws are terrible. I understand why we're using them and they're better than the plastic straws for the environment, but they are terrible. Well... Yeah, I mean, like, the reusable ones that we have are better than the paper ones that just kind of dissolve after you sip, like, for five seconds. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, a lot of films in the eighties, uh, not just the eighties, they they would take environmentalism as sort of the uh, theme of the film. You could have films uh, that are kind of about it, like Aaron Brockovich. This is about corporate polluter than the actual pollution itself. You had an entire cartoon series in the nineties. Of course, you remember Captain Planet and the Planeteers. Oh yeah, of course, Cat. Planet, he's a hero, gonna take pollution down to zero. I really I would have had no idea if you made that up. I never actually uh, knew that theme song. Oh, yeah. I definitely watched that show. We're the Planeteers, and you can be one too, because saving our planet is a thing to do. I'm pretty sure that's right. That's cool. And films like Star Trek Four, it's not necessarily like a particular polluter, but more humankind as a whole. Like we have destroyed our own planet. And there's been other films like that too. Uh, Wall-E sort of implies that humans uh, destroyed the planet. Yeah. I, I think it's it's pretty interesting when it kind of uh, you know puts the entire species uh, at uh, at fault for what's going on. I never saw that movie Fern Gully. That was all about like rainforests i think no i never saw that one i i've heard a lot of times that avatar borrowed uh, heavily from that film and people are like oh uh you mean it's like a live action fern gully oh interesting i know that people say that avatar was kind of a ripoff of uh dances with wolves i haven't heard that about uh fern gully that's interesting it's interesting you call it fern gully because i would imagine you would call it a different title Fern Gully colon The Last Rainforest. That's more like it, Al. I'm sorry. I remember when The Lorax came out and that was like very pro-environment. And I feel like there were Republicans who got mad and were like accusing the movie of like pushing the leftist agenda. And it was like, it's a kid's movie about like saving trees. I mean, come on. It's a Dr. Seuss book from what, like the 60s or something? Probably. Yeah. How do you tell someone you hate the earth without actually saying I hate the earth? (laughs) Saying you hate the Lorax? Right. Like No, saying that the Lorax's message is an evil message. Yeah. Yeah. But this film, as we talked about, this has an environmental theme. And this film wraps up the trilogy that we had seen uh, in Star Trek 2 and 3. In this film, we pick up right after the events of the previous film. And now Spock has sort of been resurrected. At the end of the last film, his mind has uh, been brought back to him. And he kind of started to recognize his friends. But his mind is not all there. So as the film opens, Spock is beginning to retrain his mind. And once it's uh, getting more mended, the crew decides to head back to Earth to face the consequences of their actions in the previous film. At the same time, a mysterious probe enters orbit around the Earth and threatens to destroy the planet unless it receives a reply to its message. But the Enterprise realizes that the probe is seeking a reply to a message that Earthlings cannot reply to because his message is sent to humpback whales. And at the time of this film, in the 23rd century, humpback whales have been hunted to extinction. And you know who hunted them to extinction now? Hunters. And what species of hunters? Human hunters. That's right. Oh, we're the worst. Yeah, we're the worst. So the Earth needs some humpback whales to save the Earth, and there's no humpback whales in the 23rd century, so the Enterprise and its crew, they decide to go back in time to 1980s America and save the Earth by getting some whales. Sure, all of that makes sense. Um, so again, I'm going to assume that this movie was a big enough hit to greenlight more sequels after it. 
This film was not only a hit, this film was the biggest hit in the entire original series and also beat all of the Next Generation films and would not be beat at the box office until 2009's J.J. Uh, Abrams' Star Trek. Really? That big of a deal? People were that excited about the whales, huh? Oh, yeah. Uh, it opened at number one on November 28, 1986, with $16.8 million. It wound up knocking uh, Crocodile Dundee off of number one, and it, uh, it actually uh, beat the debut of another uh, film, a film I'm sure you saw starring Fievel Mouskiewicz. Oh, An American Tale? Yeah, and how does that song go uh, You know that the uh, brother and sister sing to each other? I thought at first you meant... There are no cats in America, but you're thinking of somewhere out there. We totally have to review that at some point on the podcast. I thought you were going to go with the next line, though. (laughs) Underneath the something sky. Something like that. All I wanted to hear was the uh, high note. Ah, okay. No one else wants to hear that, by the way. <laughs> like, I feel like everyone who listens to this podcast, like, oh no, Alan's going to sing, and then they just like turn the volume down as quickly as they can. No way. Best part of the podcast, but the best part of the Star Trek series financially was this film because it wound up spending nine weeks in the top three. This was a massive hit, and not just a hit that you know opened big. Like I said, nine weeks over two months in the top three. Uh, films. America loved this film, and it wound up uh, earning $109 million in 1986 dollars, and that's that's a huge film. Wow. All right. Well, way to go, Nimoy and the Whales, I guess. And, you know, what was the big story that was uh, people were still talking about in November of 1986, especially when you're going to have a film that has to do with space? The Challenger explosion? Right, right. The Challenger explosion had happened earlier in the year, and the film opens up that dedicated in their memory to the, to the crew of the Challenger. The film opens up in outer space, and there's this mysterious probe that orbits around Earth, and it starts uh, emitting this weird sound. We don't know what it is. We'll find out what it is soon. I mean, it's whale sounds, and I feel like that's pretty clear because I know that this movie has whales in it because I've seen the poster, you know, when I like went to put this movie on. And, you know, like later on, it's like a whole thing of them decoding the message. And when you strip out this audio and you amplify this, ah, it's the sound of whales. But I feel like it sounds pretty whale-like right out of the gate. Um, I mean, once they isolate the actual whale sounds, I, I realize that, yeah, this doesn't sound like it did in space. But I, I think they do it well. I think this is, yeah, this is what whale sounds would sound like over a, a probe in space, if you could hear this in space. I guess it works for me. It okay. does what it needs to do. Also going on at the Starfleet uh, like the headquarters, they're kind of wrapping up the trilogy. Basically, the events of the third movie, uh, The Search for Spock, the crew of the Enterprise had stolen the Enterprise to rescue their friend, and they wind up uh, self-destructing the Enterprise, and also a lot of people die in the process. There's some Klingons that die, there's a lot of scientists that are dead, and no one knows exactly who's to blame, so there's a trial, because the Klingons claim that uh, Kirk murdered their crew, And that's basically what this film opens up on. Right. Because when I was watching Star Trek III, colon, The Search for Spock, I had two big questions. And the first big question was, what does the Klingon ambassador have to say about all of this? Obviously, I'm being sarcastic. Who the hell cares? And 
Also, this movie doesn't care because they bring this up in the beginning of the movie and then it's completely dropped until the last scene. I do also just want to point out that when they're watching like this video of the Enterprise exploding in this trial, they have a lot of camera angles of the Enterprise like blowing up and crashing onto the planet. Like, where were all these cameras in space that they have all this footage? I was thinking that exact thing. And I'll tell you that this is a film that I saw in the theater with my whole family because it was a huge hit. We saw this and I had never seen anything Star Trek before. And I did not find out for years that this was a third part of a trilogy. Because I'll tell you right now, this film could have been completely independent of those other two films. It just starts that the Enterprise is on its way back to Earth for whatever reason, shore leave, whatever. And then they have to kind of save the Earth and they go back in time. There's really no reason they have to wrap this stuff up. Yeah, it definitely feels less connected than parts two and part three. Also, though, to be fair to little seven-year-old James, why would he think that a movie with the number four in it would be the last movie in a trilogy? Like, you wouldn't instinctively think that. I guess I I don't remember what I was thinking in the beginning, but I just thought there was this weird trial, probably. I didn't quite understand why it was there. Still, it it is kind of weird. The only thing that this uh, film does do that directly uh, links off the previous film is that at the end of the last film, Spock had woken up, and he's not quite himself yet. At the beginning of this film, we do get to see that Spock is really relearning everything he had before. Now, Al... I did actually want to invite my sister to join us on this episode because we had seen this uh, movie a lot as a kid because it was one of those, you know, it was one of the only few VHS copies of movies we had for some reason. My dad, I think, taped off of HBO or something. And for years, I used to go to my sister and like when she would say, you know, something that I knew, I would go, "Mm, correct, correct, correct. And she never knew what I was quoting. She knew I was quoting something. What I was quoting, Joanna, for years was this film. This is for you, Joanna. This is a scene when Spock is relearning how to be a Vulcan. Adjust the sine wave of this magnetic envelope so that anti-neutrons can pass through it, but anti-gravitons cannot. What is the electronic configuration of gadolinium? He's really learning all of these scientific questions. What is the chemical composition of blah, blah, blah. And then the computer asks him, how do you feel? And it's asking him that because, of course, he's half human. Right. And you'd mentioned that before in one of our previous Star Trek episodes. I think this is the first time that they say that in one of the movies, that he's half human, half Vulcan. That is a shame because uh, it's it's part of his character. It's why he can do Vulcan stuff but also have some emotion sometime. Right. But so Spock is basically back to himself, more or less. And while the crew is in space, they hear this probe and this strange message and they figure out that it's whales. And they determine that this thing needs to have a response from whales, but there are no whales in the 23rd century. So they need to go back in time. And, you know, we had been talking about hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi. I felt like in this scene, I was like, okay, this is not hard sci-fi when they quote-unquote explain how to travel back in time, where they're basically like, oh, you just slingshot around the sun, and then you go back in time. And there's some, like, calculations you have to make, too, and blah, 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 trajectory, but, like, 
they do not go into the science, which is fine. I'm okay with that. Like, hey, we slingshot around the sun. We go back in time. Sure. You're absolutely right. They do not explain it at all. They could have had Spock explain something. I feel like if this film was made today, the Spock character would be explaining something, but they don't. You know, in Star Trek II, they had this really uh, glamorous CGI sequence that they wound up showing almost uh, completely again in Star Trek III, and they show a clip of it in Star Trek IV. They're very proud of that scene that they made. But in this film, they make a new CGI scene where they sort of show computer-animated models of all of the crew. You see this as sort of a dream sequence as uh, the crew has reached Warp 10. Did you notice that that was supposed to be the crew, those, those heads? Yes, I recognize that they were the heads of the crew, but I didn't really get, like, why they were there, what they symbolized. From what you're saying, it sounds to me like they were just like trying to put in some cool special effects that they could do. I mean, it's a dream sequence, but I think, yes, uh, in the end, they were just trying to show off. And people would be like, wow, you've never seen something like this before in 1986. So it, it probably did wow the audience. Okay, I can buy that. But, you know, they are successful. They go back in time. They land in what is presumably the modern time of when this movie came out. They say latter part of the 20th century. It looks like the 80s. And they are in San Francisco, and they park their ship in Golden Gate Park, and they cloak it because it's a Klingon ship and it can be cloaked. And then, like, as they're leaving the ship, Kirk says, all right, everybody, remember where we parked. And that genuinely, really and truly made me laugh out loud. That's funny. I say that all the time. As a father, every time we go somewhere, I say to the kids, all right, kids, remember where we parked? And then usually I'll add the line from The Simpsons from Itchy and Scratchy Land. I'm like, remember, kids, we parked in the Itchy lot. But, like, it's extra funny because their ship is cloaked, so it's invisible. How are they going to find it? And Kirk says, all right, remember where we parked? I thought that was a pretty funny line. It is funny. Uh, We haven't mentioned it yet, but this film is directed by Spock himself, Leonard Nimoy, who directed the previous film. And I do think it's a little illogical, though, that they park in Golden Gate Park. Even though they're invisible, you will, like, hit it if you walk into it. So it just assumes that nobody's going to go in this park for, like, a week or something. That is a good point. Yeah, people would be walking through that very popular park and just kind of, like, slam into what would look like nothing, and that would be a problem for them being inconspicuous. Yeah, I will give this film credit. There is a fantastic practical effect that they do at this scene, and that is as the bird of prey lands in the park, it basically makes a footprint in the ground, and obviously there's no invisible ship that landed here. I just think it's very well done. It really looks like an invisible ship landed there. It kind of dents the ground in the right amount of, like, three or four little sequences, and I think it's done very effectively. I just noticed that that was well done by the uh, special effects department. So the team decides to split into three teams. They basically have three things to do on this mission. Kirk and Spock are going to go find some whales. And Scotty and Sulu, they're going to go try to find some way to build a tank for the uh, bird of prey to hold these whales. While Chekhov and Uhura, there's another problem that uh, going back in time drained the the ship's dilithium crystals, which basically power the ships, and they got to find some way to recharge them. Apparently, there's a theory that if they find a nuclear fission vessel, like in a submarine, they'll be able to charge some kind of battery and something, 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 they'll be able to fix their ship. 
Right. Quick thing about Scotty, because you just mentioned him, and we haven't really talked about him in the last two episodes. I was curious about Scotty, because this character speaks with a very thick Scottish accent. And I looked it up because I was curious if he really was Scottish or if it was a fake accent. I suspected that it was fake, but I didn't want to say on the podcast, like, what's up with this guy and his fake Scottish accent, if he really was Scottish, because then I'd sound like an idiot. But he's not really Scottish. He's Canadian. I think one of his parents was Irish, and he just kind of made up the accent. So it is a little fake sounding. Also, if the character is supposed to be Scottish and they named him Scotty, I mean, come on, like, try a little harder. How dare you say anything ill about the war hero, the Canadian war hero, James Jimmy Doohan. Did you know that Scotty lost two fingers on D-Day, storming the beaches? They actually occasionally in the old series or the movies, you can see it, but they always hide his hand. He really only has like two or three fingers in one of his hands. Okay, that's cool. Um, That's inspiring that he did that. But it doesn't mean that he should still make a bad Scottish accent. No, but it does mean that we now agree on definitions of cool in the Star Trek lore. Uh, no, 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 we do not. But as these guys are wandering around like the quote unquote present day, there's a lot of like fish out of water jokes. These guys are from the 23rd century and here they are in 1986. They don't know what stuff is. They go on a bus and the bus driver says they need exact change. What is this exact change? And they're trying to like figure out how they can find information. Chekhov is looking for the nuclear submarines and he's asking everyone on the street, where can I find the nuclear vessels? The fact that he is a Russian asking for nuclear submarines in the 80s, you would think would arouse a lot of suspicion. Like, people would immediately think he's a spy. Well, they do wind up playing that up when the army does find him and they realize he's a Rusky. Yes, later. Fun fact about that scene when they're going around asking about the nuclear vessels. This was just uh, like a scene that they were kind of playing as a prank. They were basically ad-libbing and going around with real people on the streets of San Francisco. And then once they walked out of camera, someone would walk up to him and be like, hey, sign here. We'll give you a couple bucks being an extra. But there's one woman that actually took them up on their question. And she says, oh, I think uh, it's supposed to be in uh, Almeida. Alameda. Alameda across the bay. And they just basically ad-libbed. Yes, I know. Alameda, I said this. And that woman was not an actress. She is not supposed to say that line. But they kept it in. And they probably paid her more because she had a speaking line in the film. According to SAG rules, they should have. That's interesting. I will say, though, that I think some of this stuff is like kind of like, oh, it kind of makes you smile like these little fish out of water gags. I kind of thought a lot of them fell flat. I felt like they were trying too hard. I liked uh, a number of them. Some do fall flat. I love the scene on the bus, though. And apparently this is based on a real fantasy that uh, Leonard Nimoy had had when he was in some store and there was some guy playing obnoxious punk music, as the story goes. And he was thinking, I wish I really knew that Vulcan neck grip. Uh, There's this guy in this scene on the bus who is one of these 80s punks with the mohawk and he has the boombox turned up really loud and they ask him politely to turn it down and the guy turns it even louder and gives him the finger. So Spock does the Vulcan neck pinch on him. The guy passes out and the entire bus applauds. I thought that scene was very funny. See, that's one that I thought was trying too hard. 
I can just imagine like in the writer's room them being like, oh, 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 you know what would be really funny? If someone's playing loud music on a boom box and then he does the neck pinch. I don't know. It just felt a little forced. Although I will say that even now in 2021, when everyone has headphones and AirPods and whatever, when there is someone who is listening to music like loud on a speaker or like, you know, playing it on their phone without using their headphones, that is so obnoxious. That is a terrible thing. Oh, at least in 1986, you have the idea of like who carried around headphones with them. Right. But everyone has headphones today. And if you do that in the subway, you're just doing it to be an asshole. That's the only reason you're doing it. Yes, 100% agree. But without any whales, none of this is going to work. So uh, Spock and Kirk are looking for whales, and they don't know where to go. Should they look in the ocean? Or where do they go? And Kirk, of course, sees a an advertisement for a SeaWorld type of place that has two humpback whales. And they decide, perfect, let's go there. So they go to this aquarium. Right. And when we started the episode, we were talking about movies with environmental messages. And this movie is very clearly saying save the whales, protect the oceans, protect the natural habitats, protect the species, yada, yada, yada. And that really comes out in this scene where they go on a tour of this aquarium. And this woman who works there named Jillian is giving a long tour and she's explaining about how these whales are being hunted and they're hunted to the point of extinction and they are beautiful, majestic creatures and they are very intelligent and blah, blah, blah. I honestly was starting to feel like I was on a tour at an aquarium with the amount of detail, the amount of information that she was giving me about whales. It went on way too long. It was extremely preachy. And listen, I'm all for saving the whales. Like I said before, I'm, I'm all about recycling and doing green stuff. But this was hitting you over the head with it. And it gave me vibes of another movie with the uh, Roman numeral four in the title, Superman 4, colon, The Quest for Peace, which was all about anti-nuclear warheads and anti-nuclear proliferation and stuff like that. And like, there are points in that movie where it's like, yeah, we get it. Nukes are bad. Now in this movie, I was like, yeah, I get it. Whales are good. Well, I mean, that is true. Whales are good. I uh, do not think the... <laughs> Whale stuff was very long. I'll bet you it was like 60 seconds. No, 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 no. It was at least four minutes. Whatever. It was fine. I thought it was perfectly fine. But they're walking around the uh, the enclosure, and now they're looking at one of those underwater views where you can see the uh, whales underwater. And suddenly, what do they see? They see Spock. He's swimming in the tank. Yeah, and he's doing his Vulcan mind meld with the whale. And he finds out that they're scared and they like Jillian, but they don't like humans and how they're constantly being hunted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get it. Uh, and also that the female whale is pregnant. And that's important for some reason. You can't just bring back one humpback whale. To the future? Right. Well, they bring a male and a female. Right. And they bring a pregnant humpback whale so that you're going to have like a whole bunch of whales because this probe is presumably going to come back again. Right. But if she wasn't pregnant, then she still could become pregnant because she was traveling with a male whale. Yes, true. But now the work is done. And as uh, Jillian says, she's not just pregnant. She's very pregnant. Like there's going to be three whales. This is basically three whales for the price of two. Sure. And what if she's pregnant with multiple cubs? Cubs? I don't know. Maybe they're cubs. <laughs> your delivery on that sounded like you knew what you were talking about, but the look on your face was like, hmm? 
<laughs> like, I'm just going to say Cubs and go with it. And maybe Al won't question me on it. Yeah. But uh, Jillian, she finds these guys intriguing, even though, uh, you know, this crazy guy jumped in the tank. So she offers them a ride home. And she's like, what's the deal with that? He was calling you Admiral and all this weird stuff. And I love uh, Captain Kirk when he's she's trying to sound all Spock. You don't know what you're doing. Let me do all the talking. And he's like, oh, yeah, my, my friend here is just crazy. He did a little too much LDS in the 60s. I think it's a very good line because it's not too like oh well he doesn't know what this dust buster is like like it's it's a two on the nose of the 80s it's just the kind of thing that really you would mess up but i think that's a good line of course you think that's something that he would mess up that's something you would mess up you would call lsd lds <laughs> no I, I i no i pronounce things wrong i, I don't have dyslexia noah allen Uh Uh-huh. But meanwhile, Scotty and Bones are, like, going to this plexiglass factory so they can figure out how to assemble the tank. And I gotta say, that's so boring. I get it. Yeah, they're going to transport whales in a spaceship. They're going to need a tank. And how do you build the tank? Yeah, that makes sense. But I don't care how they build the tank. I don't need to see a scene about it where they're negotiating with the guy who works at the plexiglass factory. Come on. That is so boring. I agree with you, the premise that they just had to find something for the other guys to do. But I love the scene when Scotty tries to use the computer. That scene's great. And he thinks it's a talking computer. So it was, hello, computer. And obviously, the computer's not listening to him. So Bones has to like give him the mouse. So he thinks the mouse is the microphone. Hello, computer. And like it doesn't work again. And the funny thing is, today, it would sort of work. Like, your MacBook has Siri on it so you could sort of say you know do this and that but i like this scene i think it's funny this was also an example of humor that i thought was very very forced i did like though that the guy who works in the factory is wearing a giant button on his shirt that says i quit smoking and that is hilarious on so many levels first off that a guy's wearing a giant button on his shirt at work that alone is funny second that the button says i quit smoking okay cool like i mean i guess because this movie is like pro-environment it's also anti-smoking it's just really weird it's hard to imagine somebody wearing a button like that today like what would you say to someone wearing that button Congratulations, I guess. But it's a weird, (laughs) I think those are called stump buttons. Oh, maybe. It is a weird thing to wear. So Kirk winds up going on a date with Jillian and they hit it off and it's a little charming. There's a little bit of chemistry. I give the film credit that they do not make her a, a romantic interest. There's a little sexual chemistry between them, which I think is fine. But in this scene, it's important plot wise because... Kirk just basically comes clean to her. Even though she doesn't quite believe him, he comes clean to her about his intentions, and she says that they have radio tags. All he needs is the frequency of these uh, radio tags, and he'll be able to find them and take them to a place where they'll never be hunted. And she's like, okay, what? So you're from space, and you were born in outer space? And he's like, no, I I only... uh, work in outer space. I was born in Iowa. And when the check comes, uh, she has to pay because she's like, let me guess. There's no money in the 23rd century. And he's like, 
Well, there isn't. And I think this is a funny scene. And it also speaks more about the Star Trek universe, but it's a very funny scene. I mean, they must have some kind of money in the 23rd century. Like, if it's not cash, sure, I can believe that. But they have to have some way of paying for goods and services, right? Not really, because at least as explained in Star Trek The Next Generation, they have these things called replicators. And you can basically... Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go on. You fell asleep in the middle of a podcast, Al. Be, sorry. A pro- be a professional. Sorry. They have these things called replicators, which are essentially instant 3D printers of anything you could ask for. A glass of whiskey, a phaser, it's anything. So you don't really need money because you can just make anything you need. Um, I don't think that would solve all the universe's problems, but maybe? It would solve the problem of capitalism. You don't need money if you can just make anything you want. Whoa, 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 slow down there, commie. The problem of capitalism? If you don't like it, go to Russia. I mean, what system of economics do you think Russia currently has? Communism? (laughs) (laughs) Whatever, it's still funny to say if you don't like it, go to Russia. I mean, capitalism might be the best system we have right now because we don't have replicators and we have to work for our food and we can't just say, computer, give me a hamburger. (laughs) That actually wasn't a bad Scotty impression, which kind of proves my point that his accent is terrible and fake sounding. Or maybe you're saying that I'm a brilliant actor and a brilliant mimic. Sure, we'll go with that. Oh, uh, but Chekhov and Uhura are on their mission to, like, steal nuclear power by basically, like, holding a thing next to a tank, which sucks out the power, I guess? I think they're trying to pick up some alpha wave something gamma delta lambdas, and, you know, it's just something technobabble, just recharges battery and shut the fuck up, Al. <laughs> was that technobabble, or was that, like, the name of a sorority? <laughs> Well, there are such things as alpha waves. Sure, cool. Uh, but Chekhov gets captured, which is like, poor Chekhov. He just got captured two movies ago. And he had like an insect in his brain. And on this one, he falls off uh, of a deck head first and go, falls into a coma. And is like not expected to make it and only survives because they break into the hospital and Bones uses his 23rd century medical technology. Oh, this scene is great. So he is in a coma, and they send him to a hospital, and he's going to have, presumably they're going to do something called burr holes, which is when you have a lot of pressure in the head. They're going to drill some holes in the back of your skull. And this stuff has been done since, like, caveman times. People that thought they had spirits in their head, they would bang holes in there. And it is kind of barbaric because it is, you know, it's really a primitive idea. There's a lot of pressure, drill some holes in the skull. And they take the the actual surgical team hostage and they uh, basically able to mend his brain without doing burr holes. And as they're being chased through the hospital, there's this really cute little scene before they made it up to Chekhov. And Bones had found this old lady, like she was moaning in pain. And he's like, what are you in here for, lady? And she's like, dialysis. 
He goes, what is this, the dark ages? And dialysis, I don't know if you know what it is, but basically your kidneys are your filters for the body. Yeah. And when your kidneys don't work, you basically dialysis, you have some, some of your blood from an IV go through this machine and then come out the machine and back into you. It's like, you know this ridiculous thing, which is a fantastic way to get infections and death and all kinds of horrible things. A futuristic doctor would absolutely think this is the medieval times. Like the restaurant? But, no, not the not the restaurant. The primitive times about a thousand years ago. But oh. McCoy gives this woman a pill, and later on, while they're being chased out of the hospital with a recovering checkoff, the lady's like screaming, and the doctors are like, "We don't understand it. She has full kidney function." I, I just love that. I always thought that was very funny. It's not the doctors; it's her. She's saying, "The man gave me a pill, and I grew a new kidney. The man gave me a pill, and I grew a new kidney." And like, yeah, okay. But how does she know she grew a new kidney? It's been like 10 minutes. I don't know if she knows she actually grew one, but there is a doctor that says, I don't understand it. Like they're they're looking at some labs or maybe some film. Whatever, Al. Shut up, Al. (laughs) Okay, fine. So meanwhile, the people at the aquarium have released the whales into the wild and Jillian is very upset because they didn't tell her and she goes to Kirk looking for help. Uh, Kirk had said, if you need me, come to the middle of Golden Gate Park and stand in this big empty field where no one is walking. And at the time she was like, huh? But now she comes back and she's yelling, Kirk, Kirk, Kirk. And she wants to join them on their trip to the future because she sees that they do have a spaceship. She sees that he wasn't really lying. And Kirk is like, no, you can't go back. But when he's being beamed aboard, she jumps on him and that works. And she's on the spaceship too, because if they're going to the 23rd century with her whales, she needs to go too. Damn it. I mean, she does at least give a throwaway line, which is very important because I would really feel uncomfortable in sort of a close encounters of the third kind kind of way. She does say, I have nothing here. So she's not leaving behind a kid and parents and, uh, you know, a disabled brother that she takes care of. I get what you're saying. To me, that line just felt like it was only in there because of that. So I felt like it wasn't a natural thing to say. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's not true. Maybe that is what you would say of like, I have nothing here. Take me with you. But you would say that even if that wasn't true and you were lying and you just wanted to get away from your deadbeat husband and you didn't want anyone asking any questions, right? I mean, like, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. That's possible. Because there actually is a novelization uh, sequel to this uh, movie called Probe, which follows the probe. But it would be funny if you find out that uh, she completely left behind an entire family or something. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, she just casually mentions it to Kirk one day when they're having lunch in the 23rd century. He's like, wait a second. She's like, ha, I fooled you. I had a daughter, and I abandoned her when she was five. But I got to save whales in the future. (laughs) Right. Uh, What are you going to do, slingshot around the sun and drop me off? Um, so Jillian and the team, they go on this mission to find the whales because now they're in the ocean. They're like swimming to Alaska or something. And while they're on their way to the whales, there's a whaling ship, whalers who want to kill these whales. And it's a chase because who's going to get to the whales first, the good guys on the starship or the bad guys with the harpoons. And this chase is also a quote unquote chase that moves terribly slowly as you watch these two ships kind of get closer to these things in the water. It's really, really slow, and it's supposed to be climactic, 
But it's not. You know the whales are going to be fine. It builds up tension. Over 45 minutes? 45 minutes. Fine, 43. I was exaggerating. Uh, It was a perfectly fine scene. There's something in this scene I love, and you don't see it in almost any other part of Star Trek. I love that you see the scale of how massive these spaceships are. Because when they're just flying around in space, you don't really see how big these things are. But I love that this ship, which is much, much smaller than the Enterprise, is just gargantuan in scale. I just think that's a really cool shot. I always uh, like that part. Oh, like when they shoot the harpoon and it bounces off of the the ship and then the guys on the whaling boat like see it and they're like, (gasps) and then they just turn around and leave. Exactly. But you could see this, you know, pretty decent sized fishing boat is a speck compared to this uh, spaceship. So they beam the whales up next stop, the 23rd century, and they basically slingshot around the sun in reverse. But Spock has to like make an educated guess because of all the extra water and the whale's weight. So it's kind of a thing because he's just making a guess and it's not logical, but that's our new Spock. I mean, again, no stakes. You know they're going to make it back to the 23rd century. Well, I mean, it's called the voyage home. What do you think? They're just going to blow up and it goes, they never made it home. Earth dies. No, that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know that they're going to make it. That's true. I mean, I guess you could have possibly had them come back to the 23rd century and everyone wakes up. But Jillian has like a nosebleed and she's dead. (laughs) I don't know. So they make it back to the 23rd century because, of course, they do. And then the ship crashes because the probe, like, knocks out all electronics. And so that's what happens to their ship. And they crash into the ocean. The ship is sinking. And Kirk goes down to, like, rescue the whales to get them out of the tank so that they can be free in the ocean. And then... They start singing once they're free. They hear the call from the probe. They respond. And then the probe responds. And then the whales respond. And then the probe responds. It's literally half an hour of whales singing. It's just like enough already. According to you, Al, if you're keeping accurate time, between the whalers chase and the whales singing is an hour and 15 minutes. Approximately, yeah. (laughs) It's like three minutes. No, it felt like forever. And then, you know, the probe is happy and goes away and Earth is saved. They never explain the probe. And I think it's okay to have like a little bit of mystery there. Like Spock kind of says like, the whales have been on Earth long before the humans. Why wouldn't there be like intelligent life that wants to talk to them? And, like, that's all you get, and that's not enough. Are the whales aliens? Is that what they're saying? I agree. They don't explain much, but uh, it works well enough in this film. And like I mentioned, there is a novel sequel to this film called Probe. And I think it's one of those things, like, yes, if you'd like more information about this, here's the novel. That's the official sequel. I'm waiting for you to just jump out of your chair and run into your room and take out five copies of that book that you have, like, in mint condition on your bookshelf. I do not have five copies of it. Three copies? (laughs) One copy? You have a copy, don't you? No, I don't. I did want to read it when I was uh, younger. I really was interested in it, but I just never got around to it. Well, you seem to know a lot about the things that it has in it. I mean, I think I read the back of the book or something, like the side panel or something. Sure you did. But then the movie gets back to the whole trial that started it. And Kirk and you guys, you were in trouble because you did something bad in the last movie. 
But in this movie, you saved all of humanity, so we can't stay mad at you. But we do have to do something because that one Klingon ambassador guy was mad. So, Kirk, you're getting demoted from admiral to captain, and now you're going to be in command of a ship, which is what he wanted anyway from the beginning of part two. So, cool. I guess. Now he's not Admiral Kirk. He's back to being Captain Kirk, the name that I knew in my head. Yeah, it's kind of like, James Brief, you are punished and we revoke your medical license for all time. And from now on, you must manage the water park, fireworks, and candy factory. Those three things are made in one factory? <laughs> well, just in case there's a fire, you could just, you know, jump in the pool. I don't really like fireworks. I shouldn't have added that one. I actually wouldn't <laughs> like that. I guess it's a water park arcade. Yeah, that, that one I'll, I'll manage. Yeah, working in a fireworks factory just seems really dangerous. I wouldn't recommend that. Yeah, I agree. Um, and then we find out in this little epilogue that the ship that Kirk and his crew are getting is a new Enterprise. It's the Enterprise, but it's a new one. NCC-1701. Say it with me, Al. A. Nope, you didn't say it with me. Did you really think I was going to say it with you? Of course not. But the uh, <laughs> the Enterprise in Star Trek The Next Generation is NCC-1701-D, or at least in the show. Spoiler alert for some parts, but uh, there are additional uh, Enterprises. Okay. Which books can I read where I will learn about the details of all of the many Enterprises? Don't answer that. I really don't care. But, James, now that we have gotten to the end of this movie, do you think that Star Trek IV, colon, The Voyage Home, stands the test of time? I'm going to say a couple things that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm realizing really don't work in this film. And one of those, I, I've mentioned it before, this film really does not have to tie with the previous two films. I think two and three really are a definitive enclosed story about the Genesis planet, how it goes, and Spock dies, then he, he lives again. And that story ended. And I really think that this film is bookended on irrelevant parts. I saw this movie with uh, with my girlfriend and I didn't have her watch Star Trek 2 and 3. I was just like, oh. you know, let's watch uh, a film together. I think you might like it. Oh no, and she broke up with you, James. I'm so sorry. <gasps> oh, I would have told you not to watch this movie with her. We'll talk about this when we stop recording. I'm so sorry, James. No, actually, she enjoyed it. But um, I had to explain to her in the beginning. I was like, all right, in the last film, they blew up the Enterprise. They'd stolen the Enterprise. Uh, Spock dies. Uh, and they ended on the planet. His mind is back. Like, all of this setup, it was only so that she wasn't 100% confused in the first, like, four minutes or so. Uh, but it really should have started with the Enterprise just traveling somewhere in the solar system. Some, you know, cold opener. And then they're on their way home and they can't go back to Earth because the probe is there. That's all you need. I think that part is silly. Agree. Um, yeah, so I don't think the beginning is needed. The ending, it should have ended in the San Francisco Bay or, you know, some some epilogue where you see that Jillian is uh, acclimating to life in the future. Um, also, I agree with you. There are uh, some fish-out-of-water jokes that, that really don't land. I'm fine with that, though, because this, while it's a lighthearted film, it's not a comedy in that, like, eh, this is the slapstick one. It is the most slapstick of all of them. It's okay that it has jokes that fall flat because there are actually enough jokes that do work. 
And this is also the film that has almost no action in it. And I think that's a good thing because the film, in my opinion, really succeeds on the chemistry of the crew. It's sharp writing. And really, there is no need for them to have action because I've thought that any time in the last couple films that there's been hard action between the guys where they have to run or do anything, it looks a little silly. We talked about it last week. The last fight, like a 50-year-old William Shatner going like hand-to-hand combat with like a Klingon warrior is... It doesn't go off well. Right. And in this film, the only action scene is that James Kirk, he has to swim underwater at the very end and release the whales. And I'll say that part, it looks a little silly because, I don't know, maybe it's Shatner's hairpiece or something. It just doesn't really work for me. Yeah. Uh, But the film, it's just charming. It really shouldn't work. Star Trek in the 80s. Uh, but I'll say that they're not going back to the 80s. They're going back to modern day. Had they made a film today, would they go back to the 80s? That would be an interesting film, but I think that film would be even stupider because they have to make too many 80s jokes. I think this film actually surprisingly stands up, but the first and last 10 minutes of the film are really unnecessary. You know, this is a Rocky Four kind of thing for me. It's silly, but it works somehow. And it's a fun 80s film. Folks fell in love with it 35 years ago. And I really like it today. I think it's a fun film. So yes, Star Trek IV, colon, The Voyage Home, it does stand the test of time for me. And it's it's interesting that you don't find out until the very last uh, moment of the film why it's called The Voyage Home. You think they're trying to get back to Earth, but it's really them getting back to the Enterprise. That's really the only thing that really ties the trilogy together, but... Overall, stands the test of time. Al, you haven't liked Star Trek 2, a beloved Star Trek film. You didn't like Star Trek 3, a film that a lot of people would agree with you on. But now we're up to Star Trek 4, and as they say, the even Star Trek films, especially from the old series movies, 1 through 6, are the good films. You didn't like number 2, you didn't like number 3. I am so curious to find out what you thought of number 4. So, when we started this trilogy, you said that we should watch movies 2, 3, and 4 and not watch 1 because 1 was really, really bad. So, do you mean to tell me that Star Trek 1 is worse than this? Oh my god. Remember uh, in Star Trek 3 when you hated the five-minute Star Dock uh, parking sequence or Star Trek 2 or something? Yeah. That's basically like... Several of those, but they last 20 minutes each in Star Trek 1. Okay. Well, damn. That movie must be terrible if it's worse than this. Because this movie was hot garbage. I was joking earlier about, like, I had a couple questions after Star Trek 3. One was, what does a Klingon ambassador think? My second question, I wonder what the whales think about all of this. Like, what the hell? What the fuck do whales have to do with any of this? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. This is stupid. I agree with you that the movie is better off for not having like another villain like Khan or Cruz or Cluj or whatever his name was. Like, cool, fine. But like the movie's MacGuffins are two humpback whales? What the hell? It's so random. I hate this word, but it feels like this movie didn't have an idea for a plot. What it had was an agenda. 
Sorry, I do hate that word. But like the agenda was Leonard Nimoy wanted to make a movie about saving the whales because that was a cause that was close to his heart. And, you know, good for him. That's a great cause. I'm all for it. So he decided to turn it into a Star Trek movie. It's like a square peg round hole thing. Those two things do not make sense. They don't go well together. It's just a nonsensical, silly, stupid movie that is painfully slow like the last three movies and no it definitely does not stand the test of time you know taking what you said and what i said i'm just gonna rebut what roger ebert said 30 years ago when he gave this film three and a half out of four stars and a thumbs up and he said this is easily the most absurd of the star trek stories and yet oddly enough it's also the best the funniest and most enjoyable I think that actually combines what we're saying. He just has more of the conclusion that I have. We both agree that this film is absurd. I think it works. You think it doesn't. And you know what? This this one's fair. You're either into this or not. I completely disagree with you on Star Trek 2. And I guess I agree with you on Star Trek 3. So in the end, Al, you hated all three films. Uh, which one did you like the most, though? Uh, no, you're not going to say I hated them all equally because they were not equally bad. How would you order them in ranking? Okay, I would say I hated two the least. And then, <laughs> like, I really, really hated both three and four. I guess I would give four a slight edge over three just because of the one line, don't forget where we parked, which really did make me laugh. That was funny. That was genuinely funny. I love that you ranked these. You were actually able to do it, and you ranked them as the order in which I hated them the least. That, I'll take it. Congratulations. Well, you know, something that you and I have talked about not on the podcast is the fact that I am currently binging Ozark, and I'm really into it. I'm like seven episodes into season three, which is the last season currently available. I know they're going to make a season four, but I'm like this close to finishing that show, and I couldn't finish it because for the last three weeks, I've had to watch these stupid fucking Star Trek movies. So you're a jerk. Let me finish goddamn Ozark and leave me alone with the Star Trek shit. This is him going, I'm a little annoyed. Had I made him watch Star Trek 1 or 5, wow. You would have been angry at me about Star Trek 1 because of how boring it is. Friendship ending, man? No, just, you know, typical, James, why'd you make me watch this film, man? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, thank you, I guess. But that's going to do it for Star Trek September. Not Star Trek in uh, the podcast because you are going to be watching. I think if I have another shot at it, I think you might like Star Trek colon First Contact. I feel like I heard from a friend once that he liked that. Me? I'm your friend and I liked it. No, it was someone else. Maybe someday we'll watch that movie. We will definitely be watching that movie. It's just date to be determined. Fine. But that's going to do it for us this week. Join us next week as we discuss Star Trek First Contact. No, 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 no. No more Star Trek for the foreseeable future. Next week, we are going to be talking about a movie that is turning 20 years old, Zoolander. I am actually excited to watch a movie for this podcast for the first time in three weeks because we're going to watch Zoolander. Zoolander. James, are you excited to watch Zoolander? 
I mean, you didn't like Star Trek 2, but you weren't even the tiniest bit curious about this film that everyone else seems to like. We're not talking about Star Trek. We're talking about Zoolander. Oh, I'm so excited to watch that movie. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills with this guy sometimes. Yeah, you're excited too. So don't miss that episode. Make sure you're talking to us at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Am I wrong about Star Trek? Are you mad at me? You can tweet at me. You can come at me. It's okay. It's fine. You can also email us at the Test of Time Podcast at gmail.com if you really want to dig into me and it's just not going to fit in the tweet. Also, though, you should go to our website, testoftimepod.com. You should click on that little button that says merch and you should buy yourself some cool Test of Time merch. You know, you usually tell me, don't tell me what to do, but it seems like you're telling the listeners what to do and you're telling them to buy our merch. Yeah, I guess you're right. But we'll see you next time, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Al, live long and prosper. Don't tell me what to do.